How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug, Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jansey. Tim, very excited to get together for today's episode. Now, before we get any further into this episode, I do got to get some honest thoughts because the city of Ottawa was rocked this week by the announcement the infamous Rideau Street McDonald's is officially closing down this March, or sorry, this spring. So honest thoughts. I mean, this is really a long time coming. Well, yeah. Like, the place has been a disaster zone pretty much for its entire history because you could walk through that to a bus. Mm -hmm. Sorry, from the bus stop through the Rideau McDonald's into the Byward Market. The Byward Market's been getting a little a little shadier too. So that McDonald's, as soon as that McDonald's started opening later and closing earlier, instead of just being a 24 hour giant, you knew the writing was on the wall, especially when you had a 24 one on Elgin and a 24 one on bank. But I will never forget the time I saw a man pee into a cup at that Rito McDonald's. I'm going to ask, is the reason why that it's become such a disaster is because all the bars are in the market? Oh, yeah. Like, all the bars are in the market. You also have the homeless shelter in the market. And, yeah, I know people who, like, uh, some of my colleagues have told me that the character in the market has kind of changed to be seedier, if that makes sense. What I have heard is going to happen, or will probably happen, is that they're making into a bigger retail space facing uh, Rideau Street. So you'll probably see it replaced with either an upscale restaurant or some other store. Because it is still attached to the mall, right? I was going to say, I don't think I went into the mall at Rito. I went into when the Sen store was at the Bell. The, where, where Bell is it? The yeah, yeah. Market. Which, which is across the street from the McDonald's, right? Like thereabouts. Okay, that's where it is? Yeah, because it's like that thing's it's like in that building, like you know where there's the building where like you have like the kind of where the farmers market is, then you have that longer building that has like the really that famous bakery, eat place, a bunch of other stores, Tucker's marketplace, that sort of stuff. And then there's that plaza that has uh there's a sense there's a sense store, and I think there's also was a sense pub there as well. And it's got like that fake radio tower with the TSN broadcasting stuff. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. No, I if I remember correctly, yeah. Then yeah. then like that plaza, if you go all the way through the plaza across the street, you get to the bay. And the McDonald's is right there too. You know, and that's all connected to the Rito Center. You know, it's really funny when you talk about the Rito McDonald's because we always talked about it on the show, but for locals here on Vancouver Island, the only way I could describe what the Rito McDonald's is like, imagine the McDonald's on Douglas Street. At say 10 30, 11 o'clock at night. Times 10. Yes. Actually, maybe not. Victoria hit Victoria at night has definitely gotten seedier too. It has. Like it was not very good a decade ago, but I heard it's gotten worse. Yeah, like uh I'm not sure if I mentioned this on the holiday episode, but Chelsea and I went to uh the Christmas the Christmas Eve service uh, at the cathedral downtown, and we were walking back to a bus to head back to Langford. And we saw a dude almost get stabbed. No, you didn't mention that, actually. Yeah, like, it was just like, we're crossing the street to the bus stop, and uh, we heard some dude scream, get the f back here, I'm gonna stab you! As he was chasing down this guy, the guy just hopped on a random bus and drove off. 
I was like, oh, that's not very Christmassy. I don't think I need to intervene in this situation. And if I do, I, I'll get stabbed. So I'm glad I didn't have to. That's true, because if you get stabbed, we wouldn't be doing today's episode, dude. Among other things. Exactly. Well, I've always been very curious. Why is it always a McDonald's that these kind of things always happen? You always hear about, is that just because it's near like establishment, stuff like that? Is that why? I've always been very curious about that because any, like here in Duncan, the local McDonald's is so seedy and so dirty. Like I don't, I refuse to go anywhere near there. But in fairness, we have the homeless shelter right across the street from there. Yeah. So it's like, part, why is that? It's cheap food. And a lot of them will allow you to sit for some amount of time, even if you just buy like a $1 soda. So it's really easy for someone of low, low or no means to go there, kill an hour after they've been kicked out of the library. And then again, if they've also been doing other substances, then it might be quite easy for them to either pass out or have a medical emergency, cause a, a safety incident, that sort of stuff. It's like, that's, probably the reason and then like the down the mcdonald's on douglas is also pretty close to the salvation army on pandora which again doesn't help just like the rito mcdonald's is pretty close to the salvation army shelter on clarence yeah downtown victoria it's just getting to a point where it's getting so bad like a lot of people i know don't even like going into downtown anymore just for how bad it. it's like downtown vancouver I like going to Vancouver. I like everything about Vancouver. It's such a pretty city and everything. I hate walking down the streets of Vancouver because of just how dirty it is. It's just, oh, it's the worst. Like, that's, it's frustrating because, like, you want to have compassion for people who are about as down in the dumps and just absolutely destitute as you can be in this country, right? But we've kind of let it get to a point where it's ruining the quality of life for people in the city. And it's like, I don't even know what you do to fix it. Right. Like, do you find a way to build more permanent housing, homeless sheltering away from the downtown core? Is that a thing you do? But then again, that's just sweeping a problem under the rug and not actually addressing a core issue of it. It is true. So we did want to take a few minutes here to talk about the Rito McDonald's because of what an infamous location it is in the city of Ottawa. But we're going to move away from away from that and talk about today's cover athlete. For today's episode, Season 6, Episode 14, in chronological order, Episode 138, nobody won the poll. But we have a very, very su big surprise for everybody. As many people know... The SB Nation blog, Silver 7 Sends, announced they were one of the sites that got demonetized. And that's really shitty because, you know, you and I were talking about this before we hit record. Like, some of our earlier earliest guests came from SB Nation blogs. And we figured it's the only fair, it's the best way to honor them. But giving them that spot is our cover athlete for today's episode. And it's it's one of those things that, Every time we've had someone from SB Nation on the show, they've kind of alluded to the fact that those sites were always in a very precarious spot. Vox was hoping that by having volunteer or lightly paid 
workers write articles for these sites that they'd be able to generate a consistent revenue source. But obviously, that either problems at the parent company have caused them to cut the amount of money even more. So it's kind of deeply ironic, given that Vox's preferred editorial style is champagne socialist left, that uh, they're expecting unpaid work from everyone else from the sports part to kind of keep it afloat. Definitely shame on Vox. Yeah, it was such a scumbag move to do this, especially for the people who write for these blogs. I understand a lot of them are not doing this to make a living. A lot of them are doing this because a lot of them have such a passion for their sports teams, right? Or they see it as an opportunity to get into the media. And I know a big name guest of ours is Brandon Mackey. And Brandon Mackey now works for Ottawa Sports and Entertainment, Ottawa Sports Entertainment Group. He was a former writer at Silver Seven Cents. He came on the podcast, still never gave us a shout out, but that's not the point. <laughs> but to see how far Brandon has come, and even Trevor Shackles was a writer at Silver Seven and he's doing great. It's just so sad to see that these guys are getting screwed like this. Mm-hmm. And there was definitely up and coming talent on Silver Seven. Like you had Beta, you had NKB, you had those people were really promising writers too. And uh, I really hope they can keep their momentum going and uh, at the very least parlay, you know? Yeah. Well, I know thankfully for people like Beta, they've gone into the podcasting realm and I'm super excited for them to do that, right? Because it's funny, like when we started this podcast six years ago, that's when you saw the, and you mentioned this, you saw the transition away from blogs, from bloggers going into podcasting. You know what's so interesting though, is the podcast wave, at least at this moment, seems to be dying out. So Audible and Amazon, which runs, sorry, not Amazon, uh, Spotify, which runs Anchors, noticed that registrations for new podcasts is down 80% this year. And I think part of that's the end of the pandemic. Less people are at home. And part of that is also a lot of people are moving to TikTok and short, short form video, like Instagram reels and that sort of thing. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see where a lot of these writers go. And maybe there is an untapped market for a send short form video that they can attack. Mm-hmm. Well, I know even the Zoomcast is on TikTok. They're doing stuff like that. Matt Bosti, I know, has a TikTok account. So you're probably going to see a lot of the writers that went, that you said, that went from writers to podcasters, and now they're going into more short form videos, right? Because that's where the market's being driven right now. But it's also very easy. Everybody's got a phone. Signing up for these TikTok accounts or Instagrams are free. Right. Like the formal barrier to entry is low. Exactly. You can build an audience easy. Those vines are hard. Like vine TikTok style videos are. It's really hard to get like even 20 seconds of cut snappy video is quite difficult. Like don't underestimate how much more difficult it is to go from audio editing to video editing, right? Yeah, especially because you're doing it on a phone too. Yeah. And that's a big thing I think people aren't realizing and i know a lot of people would bitch about tiktok like oh these tiktokers you know they're just a bunch of kids they're figuring it out they're the ones that they're i bitch about tiktok for other reasons it's a demonic time sink 
like, man, if my parents thought me playing video games was bad, they ain't got shit on TikTok and Reels. Oh like, how, like, the worst thing is you start looking at them, you'll, you'll look at the phone, and holy crap, an hour's gone. Yeah, that was like, just on Vine. Yeah, my buddy, so uh, one of my buddies uh, teaches high, sorry, not high school, uh, middle school phys ed. And he's noticing that a lot of the kids just aren't bothering with phys ed and are just on TikTok. And like, I was really surprised they were saying, like, even the guys aren't interested in floor hockey. And you know, like, PE gets real in Canada when the floor hockey comes out, right? Oh my God. Were you, let me ask you, were you one of the kids that curved the sticks? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so was I. Oh, God, we got in so much shit for doing that because every teacher was like, no, we just bought these sticks. Stop curving them. Yeah, but you needed to get a good pass. Right? Yeah. Like, who has a flat blade? Literally no one. I, okay. I was going to say, there's a few guys. There's Patrick few Kane guys. has one. I think the Brinkat has one. Okay. Who outside of the Chicago Blackhawks has a flat blade? <laughs> I think Claude Giroux. Okay. I think Claude's, Claude's blade's kind of kind of straight. It has a bit of a bend to it, though. It's true. True. But even Mr. M would bend the damn blade. Oh, I know. Yeah, he got real when we played floor hockey. It was awesome. <laughs> oh, my God. But go back to the Silver Seven Sens. I really hope for the best. I know they put out a tweet this week saying that they're going to try and review all their options. And I really hope that this isn't this isn't it. I doubt it's the end. And I think if they want to parlay to an offsite option where they control their their ad spend, because they had that original writer base that could sorry, that original reader base, they might be able to float it enough to get them back onto their feet to a place where they start showing up in search rankings again and get organic growth. So like if they wanted to run their own site, they prop, this is one of the few times where it would work. Do you think it's ever going to get to a point where you know how betting sites are very big right now? Do you think they could ever find a way to integrate with those kind of blogs? <sighs> you mean join the dark side? They already, I think they already did have betting content, which is the worst part. Like, that's, like, that's the thing, though, like, that I'm really unhappy with, with the current media environment for hockey is, it is so dominated by gambling, and I am not here for it. Like, we got approached to, sh I don't want to say shill, but we, we were partnered to shill a gambling site. Mm -hmm. Well, approached, and we said no. Yeah, and that's why, and I'm very honest with this about even on this show is that anytime we've had, because again, we've had opportunities to make money with this podcast and it just comes down to, do both of us want to do this? Yeah. And like, I don't, I, I, I really, really dislike the gambling content. And I, that's one thing I appreciate Silver 7 Cents for is if they did it, it was not the main focus of an article. Like they kept they kept true to what they wanted to be. And I greatly appreciated that. So I really wish them luck in whatever they deem to be the correct route forward. 100%. And definitely, we'll, we'll definitely still be using SB Nation blog, 
writers and not just Silver 7, but for other podcasts in the past that we've done. Now, moving away from that, Tim, we got to talk about next week's cover athlete poll for season six, episode 15, and chronological order, episode 139. Thankfully, we at least have one vote on this whole poll. <laughs> and here are the names on the board, Tim Joe Juno, Dominic Kosick, and Matt Karkner. There's names that people recognize on this one, so I think that helps. Like Matty Karkner does have the he did have a hero overtime goal. Yep. Dominic Hasek is a name. Dominic Hasek, probably the most dominant goaltender of all time. And uh Senator Nongrata. Yep. And uh Juju Joe Juno was one of the more notable early sons. Yeah, but I think even his pre-Sens career, I think it's really overlooked in the grand scheme of things because a lot of people won't realize, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think he still holds the record for most assists by a Bruins rookie left winger. To be fair, how many qualifications did you put on that record? Well, you got to realize. Bruins rookie left wing. No, like, this is insane. Like, the amount of points he put up in his rookie year, that was easily. I'm going to bring this up here because I want to make a reference here. I know a lot of people will think of him as a Washington Capital. Let's see here. Boston Bruins. He had 70. Yeah, that's a hell of a rookie season. He had 70 assists. He finished the 92-93 season, 32 goals, 70 assists for 102 points. Do you want to know how many times he came anywhere close to that? Once. The next season, he had 72. And that was <laughs> it. You look at his numbers in Washington. He had a, I think he topped out at 64 points. Huh. In the 95-96 season, yeah. Very cool note, though, about Joe Juno, though, Tim. When he, wore, when he was in Boston, mm -hmm. he wore the number 49 because Alaska whose capital is Juno, Juno, number 49, 49th state of America. Yep. See, you don't see other podcasts giving you that kind of information now, do you, Tim? No, you don't. Yeah. Now, other kind of information that you don't get from other podcasts, Tim, is me asking you how your week's been going. You know what? It's been going pretty good. So uh, for Wawa Weiss, uh, over the past year or so i've been collecting uh data to uh kind of write i don't want to call it a stats paper like a stats paper about the game but it is basically uh i wanted to see how good going first was in why the card game why schwartz so basically what i did was uh every game that we played locally in calgary for the last year i was recording who played what decks they were playing and who went first and who won so i could then run a statistical model to figure out just how good going first was. And I figured to get, because there was certain things I just really couldn't easily model in a way that would be easy to explain to people. Mm -hmm. So I decided to say, you know what? Let's just let the asymptotic property handle that so I can just hand wave away the difficulties, run a model. But to do that, you need a lot of data. So I observed a thousand games. Yeah. So I just finished that up last week. So as we're speaking, I'm running my regressions in the background. Mm -hmm. And I hope to have a blog post written up this week so people can flame me about it. Perfect. How long do 
how long does one of these things take for you, man? What, to code up and run or to write? Yes. Uh, to code up and run, it was actually really easy. Uh, I probably spent a couple hours on it at most. Collecting the data obviously took me a year. Actually writing the blog post, depending how fancy I want to make it, it might take eight to 10 hours. Because basically I have to outline how I want to write it, make sure I get the graphics that I want. Because the hard thing is, is like actually visualizing my statistic because it's all statistics because it's all binaries. So I can't really use like a time trend. I can't really use like even a bar graph or a pie chart. So like finding a way to make it look pleasing is going to be a bit of a challenge. And then, of course, just fighting with making ch anything that makes charts is always a pleasure. Now, do you use a program for that kind of stuff for what? Yeah, so the stats program I use is called R. Other people use Python. There are mad lads out there who still use Excel. A lot of economists will use Stata or MATLAB. Like, I know how to use all of those. Uh, I don't know. I just kind of... R is the one that I just kind of got used to. It was free. And it's very powerful. So I continue to use that. I could... <laughs> I have used Python in the past. Python's also free. It's also probably more powerful than R. But R is generally better for more comp... If you're doing, like weird statistical models but if you're doing machine learning you're probably going to be using python over r i'm not gonna lie man when you say python i just think that would be a really good name for a bakery <laughs> yeah probably yeah p-i-e p-i-e yeah no that'd be good that'd be good that would be good so a little, talk a little bit about my week now not too much to really report on my end one thing in particular i do want to talk about tim is the other night Netflix officially dropped the reboot of that 90 show. Now, I don't know if you and Chelsea have got a chance to sit down and watch it at all, if you have any interest in that, but... We've seen the promo ads for it. Man, there's something unsettling about the way they photoshopped Kitty. Like, in the posters. Yeah, actually, now that you mentioned that, it is kind of weird. Like, it's like... She looks great without the Photoshop, guys. You didn't have... Like, it just looks uncanny valley, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's really crazy. But I did get a chance to sit down and watch. I haven't seen the entire season yet. I did get a chance to watch probably four episodes at least. And I'll give my honest thoughts here. Well, number one, I was a big fan of that, that 70s show when it was on. I really think that it was one of those shows that when you go back and watch it, you kind of forget how actually funny it really is. Yep. And not just because of the main cast, but the supporting cast. Like, Kitty and Red, I tend to forget how funny they really were in the original series. Well, even uh, even Bob Pizziati is hilarious. Oh, Bob was great. Even some of the lower characters in that show were great, but going into that 90s show, I was kind of hesitant to know how this would turn out because I know they tried that with that 80s show when that 70s show was on the air and it bombed huge 100% because the writers of that 80s show completely missed the mark on what made that 70s show yeah. funny is that the comedy doesn't come from references. The comedy comes from the characters and the situations they're put in. Yep. Yeah. So for myself, I was kind of in the boat with that 90s show of thinking, 
is it going to be kind of like that 80s show where it's even if you watch the trailer you can tell that there's references they make to the 90s and all kind of stuff and i i get it right a lot of the young people who are watching this probably never saw that 70s show when it was on or they weren't around at the time so i come into it and i'm very open-minded i will say right off the bat episode one I was very happy to see that Eric and Donna came back. Kelso and Jackie came back. Obviously, Red and Kitty are at the forefront of the series with the with the new cast. The one thing I really liked about the first episode, especially with the original cast coming back, if you go back to the original series and you see some of the flat like the flashback moments they have of them in the 80s and whatever, and you can tell like they tried to update it. Pretty spot on of how you would think that would be in the nineties. Yep. But from what I ha- from what I hear, I haven't like I said, I haven't seen the entire season yet. But like Eric only makes one appearance. Kelso and Jackie don't make much of an appearance in the show. It is based around Red and Kitty. Now, when it comes to the new cast, I think this is just a personal preference. I found it a little distracting watching it. Uh-huh. Not because the actors don't do a good job, because they're they're fine for what it is, right? It's 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 an updated version of that seventy show. That's what it's trying to be. Yeah, I watch it and I can't. I sit there and I just think, I try to piece. Okay, who is this supposed to be? Like, oh yeah, that's supposed to be Jackie. That's supposed to be Kelso. That's supposed to be Fez. That part I kind of found distracting. And maybe that's just me because I sit there and I try to think about it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like the original series, that wouldn't work. This wouldn't work. I found the show itself. If you take it for what it is, it's it's all right. Yeah, it's nothing amazing. My big comment I really have to make on the four episodes that I did watch is that really comes from the the main characters are for me anywhere are kind of the weaker part of the show because you watch it and you know in the original series you kind of you get a very clear indication of who these characters are you get that jackie is the spoiled rich kid you get that kelso is a doofus hyde is the kind of bad boy who's really got a big heart fez is just the weird foreign kid you kind of get the sense of who these characters are and i watch this and i'm like I'm trying to think like who exactly is the character types of these characters. Yeah. But also I don't know if it's the actors themselves or the writing. I just think that not every joke lands, but also I think it's because of the personality. When you watch the original series, you know, you don't watch the original series and think, oh yeah, that's Mila Kunis playing Jackie, or that's Ashton Kutcher playing Kelso. You're thinking, no, that's Jackie Burkhardt, that's Michael Kelso, yeah. that's Stephen Hyde. Is that you watch it and you're like, yeah, that's like that's the character. Yep. Here it's like, no, these are just actors trying to put on a character. And I felt that the original cast or the new cast didn't really find that that level for me where it's I'm not watching actors playing a character. I'm watching an actual life of people at that time. Yeah. And I heard like, so I've heard a bunch of different opinions on this. The first off being that that first episode was just rough. Uh, But it gets better as it goes on. And I don't remember much about the pilot episode of that 70s show. 
like it might have been the same case who knows but uh the other thing i've kind of heard is that the writers don't seem to have that great a grasp of what the 90s was actually like other than like the odd song choice my favorite one some people are like the fact that these there isn't someone just screwing around on a nintendo and sorry like on a nes nes or even a PS1, depending on what year they're aiming it for. I think it was is... 95. I think that's the year they're shooting for. Okay, yeah. So someone's not on a Sega Genesis, a NES, or a PS1 is kind of showing that they didn't quite grasp what was going on. Yeah, but it really depends on what time period of the 90s you're really thinking because the early 90s is nothing what the late 90s were. By the late yeah. 90s, it was computers were becoming very common in people's homes. and you had grunge was not a thing. You had boy bands becoming a thing. It was the time period. I would agree with your comments. I think for me, there are a few moments that I watch. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it. They're trying to go for the nineties thing. Like there's one episode where red and kitty get a computer, which is funny because in the original series, there was an episode where they show about, I think it was a, a beta tape player or it wasn't a VHS. It was like a beta player or a, one of those things from like the late seventies. Yeah. So basically you're just transporting that storyline into the new series, but red and kitty really are the, they really do carry that show of not only the interactions with the, with the main cast, but just the interaction between each other, because you watch it and you're like, yes, I could a hundred percent believe that kitty would be just over the moon that, Donna and Eric's daughter came and stayed with them the summer and then she met friends and all of them come to the house. I could yeah. totally believe that Red would be like, why? We fuck? finally lost the original kids and now these kids are coming in. Like, I get that. I can totally believe that. Yeah. And going back to what you were saying about the pilot, I would, I would agree with you. It is kind of a slog at times to watch. The one detail I really noticed that I really appreciate it. I'm not sure how many people really picked up on is when you watch Donna and Eric with their daughter, you can see how they're very different from their parents. Where in the original series, if you think of it, Donna's mom and dad were very aloof and very carefree and whatever. And Donna's very like, nope, we're on top of it. We're strict, whatever. Yep. And with Red, with Eric, you could see how Red didn't have a relationship with him, so he tried to have a relationship with his kid. Yeah. It's little detail like that I really appreciate. And it's a shame that the... And I, n I never thought I'd ever say this. I think that 90s show should have been a kind of like Fuller House. Where <laughs> you integrated the two casts of the original and the new one. Because Fuller House, as much as that show sucked, I think they actually did a good job of it. Okay. Where I think that's where Night 90 show for me really, it would have been very nice to bring back some of the original cast members, integrate them with the new cast. It would have been a nice deal, to, and it would have opened up so many possibilities for storylines. Yeah, no. I actually agree with you. And I guess it's also really tough because you have a successful preset show, right? Mm -hmm. With these lovable characters. And then you're trying to expand their life in interesting ways. One way that I've, this is going to be a really weird comparison where I've seen it successful 
is I'm going to go to, I'm going to use an anime example. So one of my favorite shows is Super Dimension uh, Fortress Macross. It's a military military drama in space with idol with uh, singing idols. Very good show. If you ever, it came over to North America's Robotech. And it's one of its Japan sequels is called Macross 7. Uh, named after the space fleet. It's not the seventh sequel. But what's interesting is in the first show, there's human alien marriage between uh, one of the pilots, Max, and one of the alien pilots, uh, Miria. And in Macross 7, the only real recurring characters from the original show are Max and Miria. Max is the captain of the Macross 7 fleet. Miria is the mayor of the civilian side. They're they're about to get divorced after having seven kids. And one of the subplots of the show is, like, one of the main characters is their, their latest daughter and the rock band she's in. And it's like seeing her parents reconcile through the eyes of the main characters is really cool because you have these characters that were beloved characters from the original show, but you're seeing them not, you're seeing them through the eyes of their kid and their kid's friends. And how like 30 years of life just changed them. And maybe that's what that 90s show is going for. Maybe. I know that there was somebody on TikTok that made a comment about so if you haven't watched not 90 show yet for our listeners, I'm going to give you a few seconds to skip because this might be a bit of a spoiler. So I'll, gi- I'll give you th- count to three. Three. Oh, uh, actually, go, go in and post and then tell them where to skip to. So give them a, give them, give them a, a few seconds. Then once you figure out after you're done editing where we stop talking about it, tell them where to skip to. Well, honestly, I think at that point in post, I mean, I'm looking at it through GarageBand. I'm not looking at it through Audacity. Right. So, but anyway. No, anyway, so there is one part of the episode of, I can't remember what episode it was, where Red and Kitty's new na- neighbor is dating this, like, guy. He's got a Miata and whatever. He's this really good-looking guy. up, And he's going to take her on a date so she can dump him. It turns out the guy is Fizz. And so there is a moment where Kitty is trying to convince this woman to break up with him. So she goes to, to Kitty goes to Fez and they're talking and Kitty asks Fez to be like, you know, like, oh, yeah, about her and Jack, uh, him and Jackie. Because if you remember the final yep. couple of episodes, which made no fucking sense in the original series. Because I just think that, the, especially the last season, I think they completely ran out of ideas. The last season sucks. I, I did not leave the last season of that semi show. But anyway. Most people don't. It was garbage. Oh, it was garbage. Anyway. So they have this one plot. They have this one moment where Fez talks about him and Jackie. And Kitty goes, oh, well, whatever happened to you, Jackie? And apparently they went on to a resort and Fez caught her talking to Kelso. Oh. Well, so there was like somebody on TikTok who talks about like having this dark undertone where because and this is like in the show, like that's the show ended in 1980. So there he's probably suggesting that it happened shortly after the, the New Year's in the 1980. So they're thinking that that caused a rift between Fez and Kelso, and that's why the original cast doesn't talk to each other in the new series okay that they're no longer friends because they caused a riff 
And I thought about it and I was like, that's a really good point because Kitty, or sorry, Rhett, Eric and Donna come from Chicago to Point Place. They don't bother calling up Kelso and Jackie. They don't bother calling up Fez. Yeah, it's just, well, it's like, I remember, weird to me. The, it is weird. I remember from the last season, like, Hyde takes over the record store. Yep. Who Kelso's not a even secure... remotely in the new series. Weird. Well, to be fair, to be fair, I have a very strong feeling Hyde's not showing up. No, uh, he's not. I think he's the only one who doesn't. I, I know he isn't. Yeah, Out of the original cast, he's the only one. Lori doesn't show Well, the original actor has passed. She's passed. They hardly mention her. There's so many plot lines like Kelso's daughter doesn't get a mention. Lori doesn't get a mention. Hyde. Oh, okay. Obvious reasons doesn't get yeah. mentioned. But because yeah. Danny Masterson's in prison, right? Last I heard, he got acquitted, but that. But he also like d- denounced the show and a lot of acting when he became uh, a Scientologist. Wait, sorry. On June 2020. June 2020, Masterson was arrested and charged with three counts of forcible rape, categorically denied. 2022 trial, judge declared mistrial. Uh, new trial. The new trial is yet to happen. So yeah, he's not showing up. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Now, although I can sit here and talk about that 90 show all night, I do have more important things to do as well. Like segueing into this little segment I like to call Top of the Hour. Is this the part of the episode where everything just falls off the rails now? Because it's been going so smooth. Hey, it's been if you hadn't said it, it wouldn't be in our mind. Mm-hmm. You know, knock on wood, knock on wood. Knock on wood. So, Tim, top of the hour for this week. This is a big one. You know how I feel about talking about death. Now... I actually was going to include the Rito McDonald in top of the hour, but I figured it start right off the top of the episode. This death though this week, Tim, and this happened last Sunday. And if you grew up a fan of hockey in the 1990s, or you grew up a Canucks fan, or you grew up in British Columbia in general, this one hit hard for a lot of people. Former Vancouver Canucks enforcer Gino Ojek passed away at the age of 52. Ojek, drafted 86th overall by Vancouver in 1990, spent 12 seasons in the NHL with four teams, the Vancouver Canucks, New York Islanders, Philadelphia Flyers, and the Montreal Canadiens, recording 64 goals, 73 assists for 137 points in 605 games, while recording 2,567 penalty minutes. You know, when I think of the Canucks of the 90s, so many names come to mind. There's Trevor Linden, Pavel Bure, Kirk McLean. Gino Ojek definitely is a guy who gets mentioned, and he was not known for goal scoring. But when you talk of enforcers of the 1990s, Gino Ojek's definitely one of the guys at the top of the list people mention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the guy just seemed like a class act on and off the ice. Other than the enforcement part. Yeah, but even the enforcer part, you talk to any former NHL enforcers who fought him on the oh, ice. One second. Good. Hi, Mom. Good, good. I'm just recording a podcast with Tay. I'll call you back, okay? 
Bye. I hope you know I'm keeping this in the episode. I, I, this is this is incredible. You were talking about like how smoothly things had been going. It was going to fall off the rails. And then we had, I think this is the first time in Third Light Plug's history that someone's mom has called in the middle of an episode. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, in fairness, I've had people call me too. I just never answered. <laughs> you can't say no to your mom. That's true. That's true. And I love Mrs. Jensen, you know. Yeah. But talking about Gina Wojcik, you definitely are right. He was definitely a class act. Anybody who ever talked about Gina Wojcik had just the nicest things to say about him. He was such a good guy off the ice. What I really think about his time in Vancouver is, like I said, when you think of the 90s Canucks, especially the 94 Canucks, Gino Ojek was a big part of that. And not only because he was a tough guy who stood up for his teammates, he stuck up for Pavel Bray, but also because he was a guy who could actually score. He was yeah. not just a goon. He was a guy who could go out there and put the puck in the net. And everybody yeah. saw that in the 93-94 season. I think he had 16 goals playing alongside Pavel. And when you watch a lot of those Gino Ojek goals from back in the day, all it was was Burray goes down the right side. He just sort of slides it across the crease to Gino on the left side. Yeah. Uh, he's going to be missed. He is. You know, it's, it's such a huge loss. And... You know, I really tried to get a Canucks fan to come on the podcast. I reached out to a couple this past week. Couldn't secure anybody, unfortunately. But I do want to mention two things about Gina Logic. Number one, if you were to go to a Canucks game today, you walk around this, the arena and you will see, you know, the Horvat jerseys and the Pedersons. You'll definitely see the old school Canucks ones. Definitely the Kirk McLeans, Pavels, Trevor Lindens. More often than not, you will see an Ojek jersey. And that really, really means a lot to a lot of people. Just because of just how beloved he is in the city. But one cool thing I want to mention. During the 2021 summer, that was at the time when the residential school stuff was coming out. And they were unfortunately finding bodies and stuff. Yeah. A news story that came out of this, and I did not know this. The reason why Gino Ojek wore number 29 is because when his dad was in the residential school system in Ontario, 29 was his registration number. Wow. It's one way to just kind of reclaim something traumatic, eh? 100%, man. 100%. So we've got a couple of congratulations to give out, Tim. We're going to start off with Tampa Bay Lightning captain Steven Stamkos recorded his 500th career goal during the team's game versus the Vancouver Canucks. Stamkos, drafted first overall by Tampa Bay in 2008, recorded 19 goals, 31 assists for 50 points in 43 games at the time of the story. We keep talking about Stamkos, and we really are, as much as it does sound kind of weird to uh, ad-lib on an NHL campaign, we are living in a golden age for hockey right now. And we have guys like Sidney Crosby, and Alex Ovechkin and Steven Stamkos, who've led us into this golden age. The torch is being passed off to guys like McDavid, Austin Matthews, and hopefully guys like Stutzla. 
we're just going to see miles, these milestones continue to get reached and breached. 100%. And even with Ovechkin, like, again, ever, we've talked about this on the show, how many people really thought that Gretzky's all-time goal record would even be reached? No one. Like, well, okay, one person. Does it count if it's Wade Gretzky thought Wade Gretzky's record would get broken? Well, I mean, if the, if the man himself says it, because he <laughs> specifically said Ovechkin will probably reach it. That's the highest praise, dude, because I think Ovechkin was like a second or third year player in the league. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So we're going to give another congratulations to him to Boston Bruins forward David Krejci, who played in his 1,000th career game during the team's game versus the Philadelphia Flyers. Krejci, drafted 63rd overall by Boston in 2004, had played his entire career with the Bruins. David Krejci is such an interesting player that really went under the radar, eh? Despite being on a team that has, in one decade, been won the Stanley Cup and been to notable finals, knocked off the Toronto Maple Leafs more times than anyone cares to remember. You know? Three. Three. <laughs> but yeah, like, he, he's had... He's had a really good career, and it definitely gets overlooked when you compare him to guys like Bergeron, Marshawn, Zidane Ochara. And even and even with goaltending like Tim Thomas or Tuka Rask. But David Krejci, to me, he definitely has a bit of a Ray Whitney thing to him where he puts up great numbers. The players love him, but fans don't mention his name, like, at all. Yeah. And... I think it's because he's been, for most of his career, just quietly excellent. Like, quietly very good. Very good at setting up other players and really filled in that second-line center role to a T and almost sometimes looked like their first overall center. Yeah, and it's a shame to think that David Krejci could and would have reached this record sooner had he not left for the Czech Republic for that one year. I mean, who? But at the same time, we say the same things about Jeremy Yager, right? That's fair. That's fair. But I, honestly, I think Yager's numbers would have been just so out of this world if he had not gone to the KHL for three years. Yeah, true, true, true. Yeah. Well, now, at the same gonna... time, Krejci was just always solid. Like, he usually netted somewhere between 50 to 70 points, which it's really good. It is, and that's a that's perfect for what the Bruins needed, right? Yeah. I don't think he'll be a Hall of Fame player, but he's definitely the Hall of Very, Very Good. Yeah. I was going to say, do the Bruins have a ring of honor? I'm not sure if they do. I I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, like, I could see a ring of honor for sure. For yeah. Actually. I think the Bruins fans will definitely vote on that. But we're going to move away from talking about the Boston Bruins and talk about another original six team, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Toronto Leafs forward Mitch Marner set the Leafs franchise record with points in 19 straight home games. Marner, drafted fourth overall by Toronto in 2015, had recorded 16 goals, 30 assists for 54 points in 45 games for Toronto at the time of the story. Yet Austin fucking Matthews is going less than a point per game. Yeah. I'm so mad. You know what's funny? When you think of like Leaf franchise records, I'm well, I'm not surprised that. Current Leafs are doing it, like the Matthews or Morgan Riley's or Mitch Marner's. It's just 
you think of those kind of records and you think the Leafs have been around for over a hundred years and yet it's this group of Leaf guys who are hitting those records, not guys like Matt Sondin or Daryl Settler or some of the really big names. Yeah, but at the same time, like those old Leaf teams, they always kind of seem more like they were aiming for kind of Yeoman's type players. And then you got, and then like when the NHL had that big scoring 80s, who was the owner? Harold Ballard. Harold Ballard. So it's like, I'm not that shocked, to be honest. Because like when the guy who's owning and owning the team and signing the paychecks is just not there to support the team in any meaningful way. Yeah, it's going to suck. Yeah, remember when we talked to Lori Boschman, what he had to say about him? Exactly. So it's like, I'm not surprised that it's this group of Leafs. But you know what's just wild to me? What's that? Mitch Marner has like a 19-game home scoring streak, had like a 20-game goals, like point streak. And somehow he is not in the top 10 of scoring this year. That's insane. That's insane. But also, I think that really goes to show, and you made a great point about the golden age that we're in right now. I know the NHL did do their commercials about those two during games, but you're absolutely right. When you really think about that, like Marner's not in the top 10 for those points. Yeah, and there's three Oilers ahead of him. McDavid, Dreisaitl, and Nugent Hopkins are all ahead of Marner. What the fuck? Honestly, I would have not guessed Nugent Hopkins. I, uh, McDavid dry saddle 100%, but yeah. really? Nuge, eh? Hmm. Yeah, Nuge has 57. Uh, Marner is tied with Kaprizov at 56. Crazy. Yeah, and like, I would not have guessed Tage Thompson is top 10 in points. I, you know, it's funny. I talked to one of my old coworkers last night because Katrina and I went out to my old place of employment, which I haven't been back in four months. Nice. Because one of her former co- one of her former coworkers was dealing with some depression stuff last couple yeah. days. So we went out to see him and whatever. So we're talking to Vance, who's one of the security guards, and he's a huge Bills and Sabres fan. Not from Buffalo. He's from out here. Huh. And he said to me, he says, Hey, remember when you said that Tash Thompson, all that money for one good year? I bet you're eating your words now. And I was like, yep. Yeah, no, that that de- that paid off. And you know what? Good for the Sabres. But like, just, yeah, sorry. Like Mitch Marner 14th in points, despite all that, those huge streaks is just wild. 100%. So, Tim, for NHL fans this past week, the hot topic issue was Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Ivan Provolov causing controversy by refusing to wear the Pride Night practice jersey for the Flyers. And I know that Provolov stated that he refused to wear it due due to his religious beliefs, even though, like, neither one of us are LGBTQ, T, all the... I apologize, I know it's like a very... We're not touching this. But... Again, it's a super touchy subject. I don't want to talk about it, but I have to bring it up given that it was such a hot topic issue. But there is a signing I do want to talk about, Tim. Yep. Minnesota Wild have re-signed forward Matt Boldy to a seven-year, $49 million contract with an AAV, $7 million. 
Boldy, drafted 12th overall by Minnesota in 2019, have recorded 12 goals, 17 set for 29 points in 43 games for Minnesota at the time of the story. Okay. Matt Boldy's been a revelation, eh? Matt Boldy is a guy that I went, who? Maybe it's because, again, maybe because I don't follow the Western Conference that closely. I'm just like, who's Matt Boldy? Why are they paying him $7 million? How can they pay him $7 million? That's the bigger question is how, <laughs> given their cap structure. Yeah, I was going to say, because Suter and Parise, they're still on the books for how many more years? Uh, I want to say two or three more at, like, the stupid number. Because, like, yeah, the combined buyout. Let's see, where's their buyout? They have three, two more seasons after this one at $7 million each. For the buyout. Again, how can you afford this? Uh, well, what's weird is they actually have about nine, yeah, that's nine million in cap space next year. Uh, with Caprizov's Zuccarello, Erickson Eck, Marcus Felino. Actually, pretty much anyone that they need to sign is signed. With the exception of Matt Dumba, but everyone knows Dumba's gone. Yeah. So it's like there are RFAs that are are that are eligible for arbitration or St- Sam Steele, Brandon Duhamy, and Sh- Mason Shaw. So like I don't see those guys getting a significant amount of money. Ryan Reeves is gone. Uh Frederick Gridreau is probably gone. And then they probably just re. I the real interesting question is how much of a raise that does Goose get? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's otherwise, been pretty good in Minnesota too. Yeah, he's been great in Minnesota, and for a team that has twelve thirteen million dead cap this year and four fifteen million dead cap next year, they're not in a bad place. Again, this really goes back that Minnesota Wild really are the Minnesota Mild. Yeah. Like, God, good th- they're so mid. Like, good things don't always happen to them. Bad things don't always happen to them. But, yeah, they can afford uh, Matt, Matt Boldy pretty easily. One of the things that really helped was taking that gamble on Philip Gustafson. Yep. So, yeah. kudos to them. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk about it in the games here just how Cam Talbot has been playing for the Sens recently. But, Actually, in fairness, the sense goaltending has not been that good the last week or two. So we're going to move on to a fine, Tim. Now, Montreal Canadiens defenseman Mike Matheson was fined $5,000, the maximum level under the CBA, but no sense, so that makes me sad, for interference on Florida Panthers forward Eric Stahl. I didn't like this hit. I don't like... This is like some EA NHL game stuff that you you saw with that because it's two guys racing for the puck. You get anywhere close... And then you stop and you hit him. Yeah. I'm not. I saw the hit. I'm not mad that it was interference because it was a blatant hit. Yeah. yeah. If Stahl was injured, that would have been an automatic suspension. It sh- probably should have been a suspension right there. Because that, that is a dangerous hit. It is a dangerous hit, but you do- it's a hit you don't really see a ton, though. That's the only thing, right? That's true. If it was more of a common thing, I think you could probably justify a suspension, but the fact is it's you don't see it very often, so 
could well, it's probably all fine. Now, we got two jersey reveals to talk about, Tim. Ooh. We're going to start off with the NHL, and, move, and then we're going to move into the NHL All-Star Game jerseys. Arizona okay. Coyotes have unveiled their new third jersey. It's okay. Ooh. Yeah. I, I do like the fact, I think there was one picture I saw where one of the Coyotes goalies was showing it off with the pads. I do like that they have that sort of cream-colored cactus on it. That was kind of cool, neat, but... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, you know me. I'm not a fan of jerseys that have words on them. I love my SNES jersey. You but yeah, that. this one's kind of... It's mid. Yeah, but I'll tell you what was not mid, Tim. The NHL have unveiled their 2023 NHL All-Star Game jerseys. I have never, ever had the urge to buy an All-Star Game jersey. I want them all. I mean, I look at that jersey. It's retro. It's so, you know what? Really cool. Fans have been bitching for years for like a good All-Star Game jersey. Because in the NHL, for whatever reason, they can't seem to make a good one. So they went back to like the mid to late 90, I think it, I think they only used it for maybe two years. They had these jerseys that had like the star outline on them. And they were really cool. Like they were such a cool jersey. I think with one, I'm trying to remember, I think the the West. I think the, in 96, I think the Western Conference was black and purple. And the home jersey, which was the Eastern Conference, I think it was white and teal. It was kind of cool. And I'm really yeah. glad that they did this, especially because you know how you and I both feel about that Panthers reverse retro. Yeah. I like that they're going gaudy colors. I love it. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Honestly, you know what it looks like? It looks like Kraken colors if you include pink. Yeah, it really does. Actually, do you mind if I sneak one last story into top of the hour? Sure. Saturday night, fans at the Vancouver Canucks game against the Edmonton Oilers start chanting, Bruce, there it is, as they believe, correctly, it would be the last game for embattled head coach Bruce Boudreau. Bruce Boudreau would be fired from the Canucks the next morning. God, do you want to talk about a guy who got a raw deal? You know, and I talked about this with one of the guys I work with. I said, you know, people want to blame management for this. You know where I blame this on? Ownership. For the last decade, ownership has known they needed to rebuild. Yep. They had Mike Gillis that went, took him to the 2011 Stanley Cup Finals. He told Francesco Aquilini, you need to rebuild. No, you're fired. Trevor Linden comes in as president of hockey operations. He tells them that you need to rebuild. Nope, you're fired. Get out. I don't think he got fired. I think Linden actually resigned. Yeah. Even his puppet, Jim Benning, told him that. <laughs> and he got thrown out on his ass. So now you bring in Jim Rutherford, and you know how we felt. You and I both praised the signing or the hiring at the time. We thought, oh, this is great for Vancouver. They're clearly saying that they need to rebuild. This is a case for me. Bruce Boudreaux got punished because he overachieved. Yep. And with Boudreaux, you look at his other stops. 
You look at him in Washington. You look at him in Anaheim. You would say this is a guy who has all this talent and never got it done. And okay, fair. Washington, you could, that's a very fair assessment, especially that 2010 playoffs where you completely blew it. You ran away with the Eastern Conference and you blew it to Montreal in the first round. Right. And then you don't even get out of the first round the next year against Tampa Bay. So you have all these guys that you're very talented. You won the president's trophy. You run away with the East. You win away with the division. You don't get it done. Okay, that's fair. You can blame Boudreaux for that. Boudreaux then goes to Anaheim. I think what people tend to forget when talking about Anaheim. of They were bad that year. The mid-2010s. If you really think the Ducks, who were not a bad team, they were in an absolutely stacked division and conference. Yeah. Because who was in their division? LA LA. and San Jose. Yeah. Who was also in that conference with those two? Well, Chicago, who were three-time Stanley Cup champions. You had Nashville that went to the Stanley Cup Finals. St. Louis. St. Louis. Even Winnipeg. Yeah, you lost to Winnipeg. So, okay, that one, I don't really want to blame Bruce for that because the Ducks clearly didn't have enough to get over those teams. Okay, that's fair. Minnesota was kind of the same thing. Minnesota, I think there really weren't expectations. It was just make the playoffs. We don't expect you to win the Stanley Cup or maybe win a playoff series. That's fine. You go to Vancouver now. You look at that roster and you think this on paper is not a playoff team. And Bruce Boudreaux, after Travis Green got fired, he turned the team around. He did it because he utilized the guys he had on the roster. And what was his reward for doing that? He gets thrown out on his ass. Well, he gets thrown on his ass, but also, the Rutherford did fucking all for him, eh? I like Ilya Mikheyev, but that team needed more. Like, I like Ethan Bear, but that team needed more on defense. Like, I'm going to read out the players who have played defense for the Vancouver Canucks this year. Okay. And tell me if this sparks joy. Ethan Bear, Guillaume Brisebois, Kyle Burroughs, Travis Dermott, Oliver ekman Larson, Quinton Hughes, Noah Yulson, Tyler Myers, Tucker Pullman, Jack Rathbone, Luke Shen, and Riley Stillman. With one of most of the play going through Larson, Myers, and Hughes. Is that a recipe for success? Does that spark joy? Nope. That is the most middest bunch of mid that ever mid. Yeah. But where again, the highlight might be Ethan Bear. Well, I mean, and Jack Hughes. Yeah. Well, Quinn Hughes. Yeah. Obviously. But, you know, when I think of Vancouver, again, like I said, it goes back to Aquilini because Aquilini knew he needs to rebuild. What did Aquilini not want to do with this? 
rebuild. He didn't want to rebuild because he would lose money on the Canucks. So this is the thing, and I was thinking about this today. Because I was going to include this for next week, so I'm glad that you brought this up today. I was thinking about this of, like, what would be, like, the comparable to Francesco Aquilini in the NHL? And I think about it, you know, because some bad owners come to mind, like the Terry Bagulas of the world. But the I... problem is, is that Terry Bagula, while he's not a good owner, he at least recognizes Buffalo's not good. That's the weird thing about the Pagulas is they might be inept, but they're not delusional. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, he puts his faith in the wrong people. I look at it because Bagula is also the owner of the Buffalo Bills. He put the right people in charge. He didn't have hands-on operation with them. Look where the Bills are now. I mean, in fairness, after yesterday, you shouldn't be talking about the Bills. So I was thinking about this. I was like, okay, of all like the sports owners that I can really think of, who is the big comparable? I've got one in mind, and I want you to hear this out. Uh-huh. Dan Snyder of the Washington Commanders. I now don't... Now think of it this way, okay? Here's a guy yeah. who's got the money. He's very... Like Aquilini, he's very willing to spend it to make the team better. The problem is, is that he is delusional. He thinks... He doesn't want to lose money on the team, so he thinks the Canucks, or in Dan's case, the Commanders, have to be all in. Yeah. You have to throw everything at the wall. You have to throw everything at a Tyler Myers. You have to throw everything at OEL. Even though you knew Tyler Myers was not worth the money. You were just like, no, I want to make this a team that's going to make the playoffs so I can make a lot of money off this. And the fans are outraged because of how popular Bruce Boudreaux is Yeah, how pissed they are with Aquilini. I accept the comparison, but it's like, I do wonder because Dan Snyder also has uh, a cloud of racism scandals around the guy that Aquilini just doesn't have to the same degree, right? No, that's the big compare. That's the big difference between the two. And actually, the one thing I failed to mention when we talked about Gino Wojcik is Gino Wojcik's not in the Ring of Honor. He or have his number retired. He's been one that the Canucks fans have wanted in the Ring of Honor for years. Yeah, why is he not there? I don't know. And that's the thing. For for all the good that the Aquilini family has done when the, with running the Canucks, like, taking, like they were in the Stanley Cup Finals, they won the President's Trophy, they were able to mend the bridge with Pavel Bure and bring him back for a jersey retirement. It's stuff like this. The Canuck fans, as much as criticism Canucks fans get, they are not stupid. They recognize that this team needs a rebuild. Yep. This team's going nowhere, and management has been instructed to throw money at these so-called big-name players. To make this team better. Yeah. And what's it's like the other thing with the Aquilinis when they've run the Canucks too is it's like they've actually made inroads in working with the Aboriginal communities and uh the tribe the tribes on unceded land in and around Vancouver as well. Like the 
famous Orca Bay logo that the Canucks use, uh, they got input from uh, local, like local Squamish and I think there's some little way around Vancouver as well. They got input from the local tribes there. Uh, they've often contracted with that uh, and worked and paid Aboriginal artists to work with the team as well. So it's like, it's just a very weird situation. I, I think if they just accepted reality and tried to go for a rebuild, I think even like an Ottawa stuff, like, started the 2010 style Ottawa retool would mm-hmm. probably work for the Canucks in all honesty pay to get rid of Tyler Myers pay to get rid of OEL yeah sorry when you're talking about the Orca Bay logo you're talking about the the, current... the killer whale okay so I do have to unfortunately I have to contradict you on this I thought they actually did work with uh No, uh the Aquilinis weren't owners oh, at the they time. Weren't there. Okay. I think at the time like, who was the owners of the Canucks at the time? I don't think it was the Griffins. Might have been the Griffins. Either the Griffins or uh, John McCraw. Right. It might might have been the ownership at the time. But like the the Canucks organization has done a good job working with uh the Aboriginal communities around mm-hmm. Vancouver. Yeah, especially with their aberration nights that they've done. Yeah. And the practice jersey, I think they did, I want to say last season, where they had the Haida art on it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the only... Say that the, sorry, I was going to say the... Yeah. I will say, that's the one thing about that Canucks logo, is that it's very distinctive. Very distinctive, and I really like it. I've always mm-hmm. had a soft spot for that logo, so... No, it's a good logo, and it, uh, it's... The best part about it is it does have that consultation with the local Aboriginal groups. 100%. So like that they do have cultural representation in a major part of their community. Well, Tim, that wraps up top of the air for this week, which made only one thing. So I'm trying to talk about some games. Now we got four games on the schedule. We've got the Sens versus the Blues, Penguins versus the Senators, Sens versus the Penguins, and the Jets versus the Senators. But before we do that, let's hit the music. Time to play the game. Time to play the game! <laughs> okay, Tim, let's start talking about the Senators versus the Blues. This is a 2-1 to one Blues victory. Tim Stutzla got the lone Sens goal. Blues goals are scored by Jake Neighbors and Noel Akari. Shots were 33-20 for the Senators. Jake Neighbors tips the shot in front to make it 1-0 Blues. Noel Akari scores on the Cam Talbot fumble to make it 2-0. And Tim Stutzla scores to make it 2-1 Blues, which would be... The final. This was a frustrating one to watch because St. Louis are they are not a good team. Wait a minute. Are you saying, Mr. Tim Jensey, that you were watching this game while we were recording last week's episode? Yes. I, I had it on on my second monitor. That's fair. That's fair. I'll give you that. That's the thing for me, like, I don't watch the games when I'm recording just because I have enough stuff, like, I'm trying to focus on. So, but that's okay. I'm know. a multitasker, so. Yeah, I'm the same way, but I think for me, it's that I, like, especially doing this podcast, I need to be focused on one thing when I'm doing. Because, and maybe that's why the first half of this episode was so smooth, right up until top of the air when it fell off the, fell off the rails. Hey, we're not going to besmirch my mom here. 
No, I will <laughs> never disrespect Mrs. Jency. You know we love her on this show. We do. It's so true. let's talk about Tim Stutzla, who got the lone goal on six shots. Now, it was Tim Stutzla's birthday that day. And man, what a wrister that was. So good. I Well, he just danced his way into the slot and, and beat Bennington clean. But otherwise, Bennington stole a win here. Let's be honest. Yeah. And I know for Cam Talbot, 18 saves, a .900 save percentage. I got to say, the real backburger was that fumble play on Akari. That was the moment that broke the Camel's back for the Sens. I don't know. Unfortunately, Bennington had an uncharacteristic good game. True. But I was just because saying Because the if- Sens really pushed, and I felt like even after that, you got the Stutes the goal, mm-hmm. and you had a number of very good opportunities after that, including a close call by Claude Giroux. Well, well a couple close calls from Giroux right from the slot. Well, sorry, I was saying it was a backbreaker just because you can come back from a one-goal deficit, but when you go down two, that's hard. It's harder. Yeah. Remember, you can score in the NHL, and it does happen with some regularity. You can erase a two-goal lead in a minute, right? That's true, but you need to get lucky. And you're, I mean, you're right. Jordan Bennington had a unexpectedly good game, but that's mm-hmm. not the point. So let's move on to the second game of the evening. Penguins versus Senators. This is a five to four Senators overtime victory. Penguins scores are scored by Jason Zucker, Evgeny Malkin, Mark Freewin, and Ricard Raquel. Sens goes scored by Alex DeBrinkett, Timmy Stutzla, Drake Batherson, Shane Pinto, and the captain himself, Brady Chuck. In overtime, shots were 40-19 for Ottawa. Ottawa outplayed Pittsburgh throughout. The Senators came out with a run-and-gun approach, which led to a number of scoring chances. However, Pittsburgh were able to capitalize on Ottawa's defensive mistakes, but was not enough to secure the W. I don't even think it would... Like, Ottawa made a few dumb defensive errors in 5-on-5. But, man... There were two of those goals, especially the Friedman slap shot, that Cam Talbot, just, like Cam Talbot, had to have that one. The Zucker goal actually just bounces off Talbot's glove, drops. That should be a routine glove save, right? Mm-hmm. Like this game should not have gotten anywhere close to overtime because Ottawa just put the boots to Pittsburgh. It is true, but I think for me is that while I do appreciate that Ottawa was playing a run-and-gun approach, you really need to make sure your goaltending is good and your defense is solid because you will get caught with your pants down if you do this. I mean... One mistake, the puck goes the other way. I mean, sure, but Pittsburgh got 30 shot attempts and 20 on net. That is a great defensive showing by Ottawa. What more do you want? Like Cam Talbot had a lacrosse save percentage. That's on Cam Talbot. Yeah. Period. I mean, do you want to okay, do you want to talk about the Sens goaltending a little bit here over these last several games? Because honestly, that's where the one thing that we've talked about over the season is that that's been one of our surprisingly one of our strengths is that the goaltending has been pretty solid for us, but the goaltending has not been there for us in the last several games. Yeah, like it's just fallen off a cliff. Like Ottawa had to score four power play goals 
and an overtime goal to get this one done. Brady Kachuk had four points. Oh my Tim God. Stutzla had two. Yeah. I mean, Brady Kachuk, like you said, OT winner and three assists on four shots. Good Lord, this guy was lights out. Yeah. Like, Cam Talbot got run support. And I would not have been surprised if he coughed up another goal in the last, like, he almost coughed up another goal after the Raquel goal, despite Ottawa carrying the play in the third, too. Like, this was a frustrating game to watch because Ottawa was playing so well, and Pittsburgh Pittsburgh was playing pretty poorly. Yeah. And Cam Talbot just shit the bed. You know, I know a lot of people on Sid's Twitter were complaining about Evgeny Malkin in this game because he went down pretty light in this game. The little hook and he goes down. Yeah, like, and then really, you're giving yourself a power play doing that, and I—that's the kind of shit I hate. I hate when a guy just goes down easily to get a penalty. That's soccer stuff, and it drives me crazy in hockey when that happens. Kudos to the Sens for killing off that, like the five-on-three portion. Yeah, that ha- that had the potential to get away from them. So kudos to them. Oh, do you want to talk about our Ottawa's power play in this? Three goals. Nah. Four Jeff's goals from the power play. They scored four? They all of their regular time goals. How did I fucking miss that? How did I miss that they scored four? I don't know, but like the power play was surgical. Like the pup movement was excellent. Oh God, I'm ashamed of myself. I. How did I miss that? Yeah, like this was the weirdest game. DeSmith had less than a 500 sorry less than 900 save percentage but he was actually perfect at five on five like i don't think i've ever seen anything like it to be perfectly frank now i do want to talk about tim stusa here for a minute though tim because one goal one assist for two points on four shots one big thing i want to talk about him dangling crosby mike and not many guys can do that no because crosby's a pretty thick dude you can't really get around him yeah this was also the return of Josh Norris. Yes, and I do have that in my notes. I liked how Josh Norris looked in this game. He, You could definitely tell he was playing cautious for sure. Yep. And by the end of the week, he's done for the season. But at the same time, it's like he played very well. Like, whenever he was on the ice, the puck was in Pittsburgh's end, and he looked good on the power play. It's just a shame that he wasn't fully there. Yeah, this is a this is exactly what happened to Shane Pinto last season with his shoulder. Yeah. They rushed him back too early. Well, that's it. He's gone. Well, from what you're kind of getting out of the team in drips and drabs, it sounds like Norris rushed himself. Okay, so it was the player, not the team that rushed him back. That's kind of the picture that I've seen, but... Uh... There's no evidence to show that the team rushed him here. Okay. And, like, I do like that this is the opposite of the Jack Eichel situation. That is true. So, do you want to talk about Matthew Joseph? Because I know that for this game here, his brother, who plays for Pittsburgh, came into town. His family came to town. Matthew Joseph was not playing. He got scratched. Yeah, it was a bit weird. Like, 
DJ Smith was tight-lipped about it. So everyone's like, oh, what's going on? What's going on? And then Matthew Joseph just tells Ian Mendez, yeah, I was disciplined. Weird situation. Yeah, and I'm glad that nothing really came out in on Twitter or anything about what happened. It could have been nothing, right? It could have been the guy missed curfew or he skipped practice or something happened. Yeah. And like from the sounds of it, everything's wandered under the bridge for both Ian, sorry, both, uh, not Ian. Ian's a great guy. Although the poor guy now has a 49ers profile picture. So I know. Oh, God, that must kill Ian. That <laughs> must kill him right now. Although Dallas played terrible yesterday. Holy fuck, dude. Yeah. When the Niners weren't any really any better, but actually, no, the running game was okay. It's gonna just whatever. Anyway, yeah. let's get back to talking about this game. Now, Alex Debrinkin, one goal on four shots. Watching Ottawa throw the puck around like that and him finishing, so good. Yeah, no kidding. Do you want to move on to the next Pittsburgh game? Do we have to? You know what? This is another frustrating game because Ottawa played well enough. Cam Talbot played well enough. Tristan Jari had a night. Sens versus Penguins. This is a 4-1 Penguins victory. Brady Chuck got the lone Sens goal. Pens goals scored by Jake Gunsel with two, Ricardo Raquel, and Jason Zucker. Shots were 45-44 for Ottawa. Ricardo Raquel gets Pittsburgh on the board to make it 1-0 Penguins. Jason Zucker catches Shabbat and GBD flat-footed to make a move and score to make it 2-0. Jake Gunzel scores to make it three to nothing. Brady Chuck gets Otto on the board to make it three one Pittsburgh, and Jake Gunzel gets a second of the night to make it four one Penguins, which would be the final. So you know, it's a good thing that I did watch this. I actually kind of forgot this game was on. <laughs> it was weird. Like I was at it was Katrina night. We were I was at Katrina's, and her and I were just hanging around, and we're just like, she kind of looks at me and she goes, "Hey, what the Sens playing tonight?" And I was like. I don't know, maybe? And I looked at my phone and they lost. Because oh. I guess she saw the score and she mentioned that. I was like, oh. This was an interesting okay. game because it was it was a run-and-gun game by both teams. And it, it's nice to see that Ottawa can go toe-to-toe with Pittsburgh. Like, that's the positive spin I'll put on this game. Because, like, Ottawa let on the shot clock. They definitely played high risk, and depending on whose model you look at, either Ottawa got the better of the shots or Pittsburgh did, which really is evidence of an even game. Where you're kind of getting into that margin of error of the models. You know what's funny? The only comment I really have on this game, because I don't have much to say about it, those Penguin jerseys. So I know they're, I I believe they were the outdoor game jerseys at Fenway. But for me, they look like college team jerseys on TV. Yeah. Interesting player deployment note. Hamannick was the defenseman who saw the least amount of ice at 13 minutes. Which is very unusual for the Senators. That's usually Branstrom or Holden that hold down that spot. Yeah. <clears throat> 
So, Tim, do you want to head off into the fourth and final game of the evening? Yeah. Jets versus Senators. This is a 5-1 to one Jets victory. Jets goals are scored by Mark Shifley with two, Nikolai Ehlers, Blake Wheeler, and Cole Perfetti. And Josh Norris got the lone Sens goal. Shots were 30-26 for Winnipeg. So for this game, I well, I definitely watched the first period. I kind of sort of watched the second. I didn't watch a ton of it. And then going back, I'm just like, oh, you know, I'm glad I didn't watch this game. This is a weird game because, like, it was a pretty tight and fun game to watch until the wheel, the Wheeler goal to make it 3-1. And I think that's when I turned it off. I think that's when I stopped. I was like, all right, I'll do something else. That was a goal that Forsberg just had to have. It was a yeah. weak, almost nothing tip that Forsberg was just not in position for. Yo, Anton Forsberg in this game, 25 saves, a .833 save percentage, really continuing Ottawa's goalie troubles, but also the Senators' inability to score, too, was really tough for them this game. Yeah, although admittedly, Connor Hellebuck played pretty well, all things considered. He always plays well. He always plays well. And it's infuriating. But you have to give credit to Winnipeg here for really forcing Ottawa to the outside. Like the quality of shots that they were giving Ottawa was just not the same that Winnipeg was getting. And that's just the difference between very strong defense and mediocre defense. The other thing is Ottawa did get into quite a bit of penalty trouble, which just saps your ability to play the game. It really does. And the one comment other than Forsberg I got is Josh Norris. The one goal and three shots. I really like that. I didn't realize he scored at first because Ottawa won the faceoff and next thing you know, they scored. It's like, yeah. like well, what, what, what happened? Because they were just coming out of a commercial break too when it happened. Mm-hmm. And like, that's the hard thing with this team is like, they've just been so injury depleted, but like they might need one, maybe one more quality forward and definitely replace Hamannick with a top four defenseman somehow it's tough out there and unfortunately at this point unless Ottawa goes on a Hamburglar run no we're not the season's we're, we're done not a playoff team like yeah. I'm eh, that's fine I wasn't expecting playoffs so but I think I mean the only other comment I can make on these games that are negative yet another sports net broadcast yeah and this was like what the hockey day in Canada thing that they were doing out of. I didn't watch. I only watched like the Senators games and uh, I had it on mute for most of it because I was cooking. What was their hockey day thing? What were they trying to do for hockey day this year? I think they were doing one of their hometown hockey things in. Oh, my God. Where where were they that week? Not like North Bay or something. Oh, Great. Or, um, I'm gonna look this up. It's driving crazy. I guess it's just one of those things about Ottawa, though. Is it's like they just—it's so weird because like they can't finish. They bring in a guy like DeBrincat to kind of address that finishing issue, and then the guy just goes stone cold. Oh, it was Owen Sound. Owen Sound. Okay. Like I just don't get it. Side note: What were you making that night when you were had the game on mute? Oh, I was just, uh, we were going to a buddy's place for 
his, it was like my buddy's place and like, oh, I'm friends with uh, his partner as well. And it was her 30th. Mm-hmm. So I was, Chelsea and I had finished working out and uh, I was just prepping up like some spaghetti or some shit. Okay. Like that's the, such the really weird thing about the Ottawa Senators this year is they are, they're not great, but they're a good puck possession team, but they just can't fucking score. And I don't get it. And then you bring in Alex to Brinkett and the guy just goes cold. Like it's, it's weird. I know, like in a contract year too, even. Yeah. So like, honestly, it's probably something that will even out. And I think if like, like Ottawa just somehow finds a home for guys like Austin Watts and Dylan Gambrell, et cetera, brings up some of the young talent and makes a third line, third and fourth lines out of that. Maybe it's just something that corrects itself. And maybe it's easier to find a home for Zaitsev in the off season. Mm-hmm. And then they, who even is it? Like, I wonder what defenseman even is available UFA this this off season. I guess Matt Dumba, but he's fallen off something awful. Yeah, I know a lot of Zen's fans are not happy. I know that Dorian was on a trip and he was looking at Seth Jones or Connor Murphy. So I don't I, know. I haven't heard that. I heard that he was in LA versus Dallas, and LA has some promising surplus defenseman on the right side which could work for ottawa yeah it came out today i think he went to see the blackhawks oh no the other night yeah yeah because seth jones has been well i I don't see ottawa bringing in seth jones not at that cap hit anyway well not at that cap hit for sure if you want to see a guy who's suddenly had problems finishing Seth Jones is your man. And yeah, I don't think they bring in a guy who's paid like a mediocre fix-it defenseman mm-hmm. who has a higher cap hit than Stutzla and Shabbat and Brady. I just don't see it. No, especially if you're wanting to re-sign to bring Cat. Yeah, no. No, for sure. Connor Murphy, maybe if he's improved, but it's like that is an intriguing name but he is definitely he's an offensive black void Mm -hmm. more so that like yeah like when when he's on the ice offense doesn't happen so like connor murphy might not be a terrible pickup it's just gonna be what the price tag is gonna be yeah like he is a more extreme zoob Oh, so it's Zoob with all caps? Well, it's like, like if we're going to use like Mika's model for explaining uh, offense, defense, isolates, as far as defense goes, Artem Zoob is a negative 5%, which it uh, shots like expected goals per hour against, while Connor Murphy's negative 10. So that's about 0.14 unstandardized to negative 0.2 per hour unstandardized. While on offense, Connor Murphy is negative 0.254, while Zub is negative 0.164. So it's like similar. Pl- they're actually pl- Connor Murphy and Zub are similar players mm-hmm. in a lot of respects. Zub is younger. So Connor Murphy, if they don't spend a lot to grab him, wouldn't be the wouldn't be the absolute worst. If he ages well. 
I can't believe Connor Murphy's almost 30. Yeah, just like us, Tim. We're not almost 30, Tay. I know. It makes me sad, but it is what it is. So, Tim, do you have any more comments you want to make on these games before we head off into the close for another episode? Uh, No, I think I'm good. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug. Sensecast. I hope you've enjoyed it because, believe me, Tim and I love recording it for you. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play, as well as on Twitter and Instagram at Third Line Plug. You can find me on both at Great White Gipster, and you can find Tim on Twitter at M901 Honey Badger. So thankfully for this coming week, Tim, we don't have four games to talk about. We've got three games to talk about. But okay. nice, though, we've got two games against original six division rivals. It's going to be a wrestling episode next week, Tim. I'm so excited. Let's go. Wednesday night, we are at home to play the New York Islanders. Friday, we fly to Toronto to play the Toronto Maple Leafs. And Saturday, we return home to play La Canadienne. I really wonder if we're going to get to see Matt Murray. Because that could be a fun game. Wouldn't that be Wouldn't that be something if Matt Murray takes one shot and he goes down? It's like, oh, fuck, he really is hurt. <laughs> no, I shouldn't wish that wish no. on him. I'm sure he's a nice guy. Like, yeah. It's just unfortunate how his career's kind of gone, eh? Very much so. I mean, he did stay. I mean, he did steal one Stanley Cup from us, but that's not the point, Tim. Yeah, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but then again, it's like neither him nor Samsonov have been consistently good for the Leafs, so. Anything is possible. That's true. Until next week, guys. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. And this has been Tim Jesse. Woo!